continuing this morning in our study in the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 14. Up until this point in John's vision and Revelation being a vision that John saw as he was on the Isle of Patmos, and so far he's recounted a story of of the seals and the scroll, and the seals were opened, and we haven't gone over this, but in between where we have studied and where we're starting today, uh, there's trumpets that sound, and each of these trumpets um, symbolizes a different judgment. And today we're going to start reading in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. If you look at the title of the lesson, it's a day of reckoning, and it's basically, it's ta- we're talking about judgment today. And I hope nobody stayed home today because of that, because I'm not here to judge anybody. <clears throat> I'm here to just talk about the Word. So let's start our reading in chapter 14. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. After the blowing of the seventh trumpet, there is some people or some things that come into play. Uh, other characters in the book of Revelation, there is a woman that John talks about. There's a dragon, there's a beast, and a false prophet. But as John is talking in this passage of Scripture, he sees an angel flying, the Bible says, in the midst of the heavens. And this angel was proclaiming what John called the everlasting gospel. And there's a couple different views of what this is talking about. Some think that this is the the gospel like we think of it as being the, the saving grace of Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection. Others say the announcement that is recorded here denotes the content of what he's fixing or getting ready to, fixing, that's a southern term, what he's getting ready to proclaim. The angel, when he starts to proclaim what he has to say, he pronounces it to all the inhabitants and he tells everyone to give God glory and to fear God because judgment is to come. This emphasis on fearing and honoring, I believe, is simply because of the judgment that is to come. That God is going to judge every person, every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every people on the earth. God will judge everyone. Going on, Revelation 14 and 8. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And after this first angel goes by, there's a second angel that, that proclaims, Fallen is Babylon the Great. The angel that is speaking of Babylon, there's a lot of um, different views on what he was talking about here also. But the the main point was that Whoever this or whatever this Babylon is, this great city, had seduced the nations of the world like a prostitute and had made them drunk on the wine of the wrath of her adulteries. In other words, whoever 
person, city, object is, it brought down the people to its level. Whatever morality there was, was taken away, and these people are now brought down to this lower level of morality of this city of Babylon. The city of Babylon is referenced often in in Daniel. There are a lot of correspondence between Daniel and Revelation when it refers to Babylon. Remember that Daniel actually lived in the original Babylon. That's a city where the Jews were taken captive, and Daniel actually grew up there. Some think that Babylon is a code name for the city of Rome. Um, in John's day, Rome was the epitome of everything that was against God and his people. Ancient Rome was a commercial, religious, political center of its time, and it certainly evokes some parallels between itself and Babylon. In Revelation 17, and we won't won't go there, but Babylon is addressed as a, a woman dressed in purple and scarlet, sitting on a beast with seven heads. Why a lot of people believe that it's referring to Rome here is the seven heads are identified later as seven hills on which the woman sits. Stay with me just a minute. This is just historical facts. Rome began as a settlement of villages on seven hills and was commonly referred to by the Roman writers as the city on seven hills. So a lot of Bible scholars believe that when it's talking about Babylon, it's actually speaking of Rome because it would equate to what Babylon was at that time, that it would, it would be an evil thing that would bring down the rest of the world. Now, that's, I'm not making reference to any specific church or religion. It's just that if you look later and you see that this woman sits on seven hills, it does seem to correspond with the fact that Rome is built on seven hills, was founded there. Others maintain that the, the ancient city is actually the original city of Babylon, which will be raised back up by somebody in the last days and rebuilt. And keep in mind, Babylon at the time was, it contained one of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens. And it was a very, very cultured and sophisticated city for its time. And a lot of people think because of where it is in the Middle East, where a lot of the stuff that we see now is going on, that there will be a city raised up in the area where the original Babylon was, and that will be what John was referring to here. Again, I I believe it's one of those things that nobody knows for sure. And when we get to heaven, we'll probably find out. But the most important thing is, this is not, in my opinion, this is not for the people of God. This is thing, these are things that are going to happen after the church has already been taken off the earth. So at that point, it really won't matter to us who it is or what it is or where it is because we're going to be gone. Going on. Revelation 14, verses 9 through 12. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, image, and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. 
and smoke of their and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. <clears throat> Here we get into another part of Revelation that probably most people are familiar with, and this is when we talk about the mark of the beast, and we're not going to go into a lot of depth of that, but we will cover it briefly. But we have a third angel that comes across the sky, and he announces that those who worship the beast or the image of the beast that's made to represent it would experience God's judgment. Now, I will tell you this. Everyone will experience God's judgment, not just these people. All of us, even those that have been raptured, will stand before God for a time of judgment. The judgment that it's speaking of here, though, is true for those that have the mark of the beast branded on their forehead or on their arm. And it is a distinctive mark that is symbolized by either a series of numbers that represent 666 or some type of coding that represents 666, or it can literally be the number 666. I've heard it explained a lot of different ways. I would say it would be more likely with the way things are going in this earth that it could be a series of numbers, six numbers, six numbers, six numbers, that would denote who everybody is on earth. <clears throat> and to be honest with you, years ago, it seemed like a, an impossibility that that could happen, that somebody could be marked on their forehead or in their back of their arm. But I know for a fact that we have, we have three dogs, and all three of our dogs, if they get lost... Somebody can take them to the vet or to the pound or wherever, and they can run a scanner over our dogs, and there's a chip placed in our dog that will give them a number, and that number will give them who they belong to, their address, their phone number. Everything about them is on them. It's actually in them. It's under their skin. And all it is is just an injection. So to say that that's what it's going to be, a few years ago, nobody would have thought that possible. They've actually gone a step further. You can actually have a small GPS-type device that can be tracked by GPS, can be put under the skin, which means not only would somebody know who you were, they'd know where you are. So those things in modern technology are there. So to say that it's literally going to be years ago, you know, you always saw the pictures of somebody had the 666 on their hand or 666 on their forehead. I think it's going to be a lot more subtle than that. It'll probably be, I know back a few years ago, they actually were offering as a, a study for people where they didn't have to cre carry a credit card that you could actually have the, the barcode numbers on your credit card put in your hand, I believe it was, and you could just run it over a scanner and you didn't have to carry a credit card. It was supposed, the idea was to do away with identity theft. And I'm sure it will be proposed in a way that people aren't going to look at it and go, oh, I don't want to do that, that's the mark of the beast. I'm sure it's going to be something that people will say, well, that sounds okay to me, because it's going to be a deception. And there will be people that will do it because they think it's more convenient. 
Anyway, that's the mark of the beast. The code, name, code number is 666 in numeric code or however it is. There are actually two beasts in, mentioned in the book of Revelation. The first one that appears is from the sea and has seven heads and ten horns. And we're not going to get into what that represents the World Council of Churches or whatever it happens to be, but it says that there is a beast that has seven heads and ten horns. And I don't believe that's a literal beast that has seven heads and ten horns. I believe it's more of a symbolic thing of, of different powers of the world. The second beast comes out of the earth and is a false prophet for the first beast. He compels the world to image, to worship the first beast or an image of the first beast. Now, again, we could spend weeks just on this topic right here. Who that is, what that is, when that is, I don't know. I don't plan on being here. I plan on seeing it from a long ways off, maybe, if I want to. But I don't know who that would be. I would say that it's very likely that whoever that is could very well be alive today. I believe we are that close to the end time that the person that the Bible refers to here or the group of people that the Bible refers to here could already be on the earth. Those who worship the first beast will have that mark of loyalty on them somewhere. And it's interesting to note, if you remember back when we first started our study in Revelation, it spoke of how God came down and He branded on His people a mark so that they were noted as to they belonged to Him. This beast is taking basically that same idea and falsifying it with Him and His mark. So basically it's just a copy of what God did for His people. And there's a lot of that. We see that in society. We've seen it for years and years. That anytime there is true religion and there is true people that follow after Christ, there is something else that looks similar to it that people follow after, and it's not true. And in the end time, it will be the same way. It goes on to say in this passage of Scripture that all those that bear the mark... God will judge. And there's a phrase that's used here. It's an interesting phrase in verse 10. It says, The wine of the wrath of God and the cup of His indignation. And what this refers to is God's judgment. In the Bible times, in the, the days that John was writing, people considered undiluted wine to be extremely potent. In other words, it was usually watered down because the alcohol content was so high. And if you drank it just purely the way it was distilled, you would just, it would just be too much. So undiluted wine was considered to be potent. And if you look the way this says, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture. In other words, it will be the undiluted wrath of God that will fall on these people. That's scary. The full wrath of God is poured out on these people that we're speaking of here. This is a symbol of, of severe judgment. According to the Scriptures, let's back up a minute. There's a place here where it says that this happens in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb in front of the saints. And 
And that's in Revelation 14 and 10. As you read that, some people would look at that and say, uh, that just doesn't seem right. It seems like that God and the angels and the saints are gloating over the fact that these people are being punished. That's not what this is saying. Just because they're watching, that's, it's not a matter of they're gloating over the fact that these people have been punished. More likely, it's an emphasis on these people have been judged. This is their eternal condemnation. And the condemnation of the wicked actually vindicates the faith and devotion of the saints to God. So it's actually pointing out a separation that here are the saints here that are with God and here are those that are being judged. It's not like they're all standing around watching these people be judged with this tremendous wrath of God. The saints are the ones that have, they've abandoned the worldly ways. They're the ones that have embraced the ways of God. And that's why I believe it's really, it's pointing out a separation of the two. I don't believe it's going to be a, a spectator sport for people to stand back and watch the wrath of God poured out on the, those that have not followed Him. Now, one thing that this scripture also points out, the presence of pain and suffering in this world and evil, a lot of times people say, if God really is in control, why doesn't he do something about evil? And I'm sure you've heard that from people before that, that say, you know, why do bad things happen if God really is a loving God? I believe in this, this passage of scripture, it doesn't explain why, why there is evil, but I do think it points out a very encouraging truth. And that's this. God has placed restraints on evil. And there is one day that he will judge all those that are evil. So why, while we might not understand why there is evil in the world, by this passage of Scripture, we know that at some point, those that are evil and those that are wicked and those that have done the things that we look at as being evil and wicked in this world will be judged by God himself. I believe John was well aware of the things that the followers of Christ were having to endure. You have to realize that he himself was banished to this isle that was basically an island of rocks. And he was exiled here to live. He had seen some of his brothers in Christ that have been beheaded, boiled in oil, hung upside down on a cross. Just all different ways that people had been killed. And I believe that in addition to talking about judgment, he was also offering people encouragement that we will not be those that feel the wrath of God. We will be in the presence of God. Anytime you see something like this, there are two sides of it. It's like, it's like your mom told you when you were growing up that you went in and told her that something happened and she would say, well, there's two sides to every story. And she'd want to hear your brother or sister's view of it too. And that's kind of the way that this pa these passages in the Bible read that anytime there's judgment, there's also blessing on someone else. Anytime there's a penalty, there's also a reward. And there is something that separates those two, and that's God and His judgment. 
Let's go on to Revelation 14 and verse 13. Then I heard a verse from heaven, a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. And this is what we're just talking about. We go this, we have this contrast, this vivid contrast of this torment and destruction and judgment, the unbridled wrath of God that's poured out on these people, and we immediately go to this voice saying, Blessed are the those who die in the Lord. It's, it's amazing also through the book of Revelation, this is only one of seven Beatitudes that appear in the book of Revelation. And we re- usually recognize the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn for they shall, whatever the rest of them are. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. And we think of those as being in the New Testament. There's actually seven of those that appear through the book of Revelation. These verses contain a Greek word. And the Greek word is menkarios, which is rendered blessed or blessed. This term, it actually underscores the, the hope that believers have in the middle of all these depressing and distressing experiences that they might go through in this life. And this is not just to those in the end time. This is to us today. This is as an encouragement to us today to know that at some point we will receive the reward that is promised to us. And it's it's this tremendous contrast again between, between punishment and reward. And what we are encouraged to do in this scripture is to have patience, to endure whatever it is that we endure as we live on this earth because there is a promise of something much greater that will come to us in the future. And I realize that in today's society, we really aren't persecuted an awful lot. We rarely would have anybody even anymore even care what you believe much less persecute you for what you believe. Because there's so much and, and the world has turned into or our society has tried to turn itself into a society of tolerance for anything, literally. So we don't really have a lot of persecution. But we do have things that happen to us as Christians because I believe that the devil himself attacks us because we are believers. Maybe we don't have people after us and and standing around the church on the outside waiting to throw rocks at us when we walk out of the building. But there are things that happen that I believe are characteristic only to believers in today's society, things that the devil will use to attack us to try to let us, to, to lead us down that path of destruction. To try to discourage us. To try to make us think that God really doesn't exist. Now think about that for a minute. The devil will try to make us believe that God doesn't exist. He's okay with us believing that He exists. And we know that God created Him. But it's worked for a lot of people. That's right. 
John's description of God's judgment in this passage and in a lot of other places in the book of Revelation is is both a warning and an encouragement. To those that are rebelling against God, John in this passage is telling them that they need to turn away from their sin. They need to humble themselves before the Lord. To those that are enduring hardship and are staying true to what the Bible teaches and staying true to what what they believe, John tells them that there's a reward they ultimately will receive. And the main point of this lesson today is really just judgment. And I know that sounds simple, but it, it points to a fact that a day or a time of judgment is coming to each and every one. And I, I don't want this to be a seem like a totally negative lesson this morning because I want us to remember through everything we talk about, there is there are two sides to everything that we're going to talk about. But let's talk about judgment just a minute. Whose place is it to do the judging? A number of years ago, been quite a while now, there was when television evangelist Jim Baker was on the front page of all the newspapers and the television stories were about him and the scandal with PTL, Ted Koppel was interviewing Jimmy Swaggart. And Jimmy Swaggart was asked to give his opinion concerning what was happening to Jim Baker and the PTL empire. And Jimmy Swaggart was very judgmental. In fact, he called Jim, Jim Baker a cancer in the body of Christ. That was his words. A short time after that, Jimmy Swaggart was in the news. And it came to light that he had been visiting prostitutes. And this had been going on for quite a while, even during the time when he called Jim Baker a cancer on the body of Christ. And if you think about it, it's kind of amazing that someone would do that. You would think that somebody that was indulging in this type of sin, when asked to comment on another person's sin, would be a little bit more charitable. And he's judging someone. You would think that a person in that position that knows what their life is, that's asked a question about another person's life, would say something like, well, Jim Baker's having a tough time right now. I'm praying for him, and I hope that God will help him get back on track. You would think that's what a person would say. But he didn't do that. And unfortunately, a lot of times, neither do we. Why is it that so many times we can be so judgmental when we are so far from being perfect ourselves. There's an old saying that says, those that live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. The truth is that often we like to throw stones. We know we live in a glass house, 
But what we hope is that the other guy's aim isn't as good as ours. Or we think that our sins are hidden so nobody will ever find out. The Bible says that one day all of these things will be revealed. In fact, in the book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. The point of this is that, of course, God knows everything. There is nothing that escapes His eye. It is not our job to judge other people. And I know there will be some that are devastated by this revelation, but it's true. It's not our job to judge others. I want to go to the book of Romans, chapter 2 and verse 1. You therefore have no excuse... You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. I didn't write it. I just read it. The basic meaning of this passage of Scripture is that none of us have an excuse. The Bible says in another place that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have no excuse because we are all sinful. We have all sinned at some point in our life. For us to go out and judge somebody else, it just makes us look as ridiculous as that first story that we gave of Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart. Here's something else that's interesting. The fact that we feel free to judge others indicates that we ourselves acknowledge that there should be or there is some standard for morality. And by judging others, we are acknowledging that that person is not meeting that standard of morality. But that standard has to apply to us as well as it applies to whoever we think we're judging. Most likely, we don't even live perfectly by our own standard and therefore as this verse in Romans 2 and 1 says we are certainly without excuse we will not be able to stand before God on the day of judgment and open our mouths up to say anything on our own defense we will stand guilty as charged now with that being said, if we know that God is the judge, how do we know that His judgment will be fair? Let's go on read verses 2 through 4. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? In other words, God knows the truth about us. 
He knows our hearts. He knows our minds. He knows what motivates us. He knows how we think. He knows precisely every sin that we have committed and the circumstances around it. This is both good and bad. It's good because you don't have to explain anything to God. It could be bad because He knows all the details. But He does know everything, including the very intentions of our heart. He doesn't just know what you do. He knows why you do it. See, that's one thing when we, when we go about in our, our job of judging people, the only thing that we are able to judge is a person's actions. We don't know what the intent was, which doesn't make us a fair judge. And that's why God didn't leave it up to us. I assure you that when you stand before God, you will not be misrepresented. But I will assure you this, that we are not God, and that's why we're not capable of judging others. No one has left us in charge of everyone else. It's not like when the teacher left the room when you're in second grade, and she left Johnny here in charge, and he was supposed to tell on everybody when the teacher got back. God didn't do that to anybody here on earth. I've heard my father say many times, God did not call him to be a police officer or a detective. It's not his job. So since we don't have charge over everyone else, then that means we should probably just get our own house in order. And a lot of people think that because they have not felt the judgment of God for their sins, that God must approve of their attitudes and behavior. That's not the case. The reason that God is showing us these qualities of grace and not judging us immediately is not because He approves of what we're doing. Verse 4 indicates this. It is God's desire that His kindness leads you toward repentance. Don't mistake God's kindness for saying it's okay to do what you're doing. His kindness is there so that He's in hopes that you will come to repentance. To presume upon that kindness as acceptance of sin is to show contempt for what God is doing. I'll say that one more time. To presume upon that kindness as acceptance of sin is to show contempt for what God is doing. He is showing grace to us if we, if we do something wrong, if we sin. and you, Maybe you've been saved for, for 80 years and, and you find yourself in the middle of something and you've, you've stumbled and you've, you've committed a sin. God wants to forgive you. God is not a God that when a person sins, He says, well, now that they're down, I'll just stomp on them. That's us. 
That's a very common characteristic of many Christians. When someone falls, we want to see how far down we can just keep kicking them. That's not a God quality. God offers love. He offers kindness. He offers grace. He offers restoration to anyone who asks for it. As much as I'm not a fan and was not a fan of Jimmy Swaggart before all of this stuff happened with PTL, I think going through what he went through kind of changed the way that he looked at a lot of things. I saw him in an interview after he, was, after he got out of prison, and someone asking the question in more of a statement said, I bet when you went to prison, you lost a lot of friends. He said, I didn't lose a single one. They said, how is that? He said, because the Bible says that a friend loveth at all times. Anyone I lost, they weren't my friend anyway. That is the quality of the God we serve. That if we fall, He wants to reconcile us back to Him. Yes, there is judgment, but the judgment is to come. Up until that time, there is reconciliation. There is grace. There is mercy that is shown to us. Going on. Verses 5-10. through 10. God's judgment is personal, proper, and according to behavior. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give each person according to what he has done. To those by who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who re- reject truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. According to this passage, God's judgment in our lives, or in the life of any person, is an individual matter. It's personal. Everyone will be judged according to their own merits. You will not pay for the sins of another, and by the same token, somebody else will not pay for your sins. God's judgment will be fair and tailored to each individual life. That's why we can say that we know that God's judgment is perfect. A lot of times we as humans want to lump everyone together and condemn them all by judging them by our standard. It's not the way God works. God judges men on what He knows about their heart. His knowledge of the human heart is very thorough. In Hebrews 4 and 13, here's what it says. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. In Jeremiah 17 and 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, 
according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Notice that it's specific to the man. His conduct, his deeds. These verses tell us that the person who lives right and seeks the Lord will enjoy the blessings of God. It goes on to tell us in the book of Romans that those who deny God and seek after themselves will receive their proper judgment also. And that judgment is what we looked at today in the book of Revelation. That's that unbridled wrath of God that will be poured out on those people. It is impossible to get away from the truth that the condition of the heart matters. You can't run away from it. Ecclesiastes 11 and 3. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain upon the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there will it lie. You go, well, what does that have to do with anything? Wherever a tree falls, that's where it lays. And that means however you die, whatever the condition of your heart when you die, that's how you appear before God. There is no praying for somebody's sins after they're dead. They will be judged by what is in their heart at the time that they die. As a tree falls, there it will lie. So everything hinges on what a person does with the message of Jesus Christ. We're not saved by works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is God, not by works, so that no man can boast. But behavior and condition of the heart both matter. What you do and the reasons for why you do it, God cares about both of those. And salvation comes, and it always has come, through the faith of the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. When God looks at us in judgment, He will be looking at more than just our attitudes. I believe that He'll be looking at our actions. Now, I know we just read that, that, that we can't, and we just said that we can't be saved by works. I realize that. But God will judge us on our actions also, it is not enough to say that we believe. We have to behave as if we believe. It's not enough to believe that there's a standard. We have to live by that standard. And I'm not talking about what kind of shoes or shirts you wear. I'm not talking about that kind of standard. I'm talking about standards of morality. I don't care if you wear short sleeve shirts. Please. God's judgment will also be according to behavior. God's will is to give to each person according to what they've done. Everyone will receive according to what they've done. It's not like He's going to do something to someone. Everyone receives according to the way that they've lived their life. God is not going to send anyone to hell. They make that decision themselves. I've heard people say, if your God is so loving, then there can't be a hell because He wouldn't send people there. You're right. 
He is loving. And He would never send anybody to hell. But there is a plan that He's given for salvation. And it's up to us to choose what we do with that plan of salvation. We can accept it or we can reject it. Scripture tells us that those who repent, who are baptized, receive God's Spirit, and live obediently to God's Word, He will give them eternal life. For those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth, who reject the plan of salvation, there will be wrath and anger. Now we're talking about actions. Repentance actually means to do an about-face to go the other direction. It doesn't just mean to say, I'm sorry. It's more than just something spoken. It's something that is done. Verse 11. God's judgment is perfect. For God does not show favoritism. Aren't you glad? Real simple verse. And it basically just says that no one receives special treatment from God. No one gets a free pass. No one gets to go out and do whatever they want just because they're special. It doesn't matter if you're a, a pastor Sin is sin. I'm not talking about our pastor here, so don't get any ideas. It doesn't matter who you are. You don't get special favoritism because of your position. You are held accountable probably to a higher standard, if anything. Everyone will be judged by the same criteria. Jesus Christ and your personal relationship with Him. Did you have one or did you not? Pretty simple. There's no respect of persons with God. Regardless of what some might believe, He doesn't single some out for heaven and some out for hell. It's not that way. He gives everyone that has ever lived an opportunity for salvation and He will judge them fairly. It doesn't matter who you are or what your background is. It doesn't matter if you've been religious or non-religious. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy or if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're educated or uneducated. Because God is not impressed with degrees or by money. Your position in society doesn't matter to God. Everyone will be judged impartially. Favoritism is something that we show to people we deem to be more worthy than someone else. Remember the teacher's pet? See, everybody knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> there was that one person in the class that everybody thought the teacher liked better than everybody else. That's favoritism. God doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't have any teacher's pets. But in showing favoritism, we don't treat people fairly. And we have a tendency to do that. We look at some people as being more worthy of salvation than others. Don't disagree with me yet. 
I'll let you t- give you time to think about that one. If we didn't believe that, we would go out to everyone and share the gospel. Verses 12 through 6. God's judgment will focus on reality. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. How about that? Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences are bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. We have read in Luke that there is a day coming when everyone will stand before God in judgment, when all of the secrets will be proclaimed publicly. What will be the base of judgment? The gospel of Jesus Christ. God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. A man's eternity will rise and fall on what they did with the gospel of grace. On that day of judgment, it will not matter one bit what you've accomplished in life, your standing in the community, or how much everybody liked you. All that will matter on that day is what did that person do with Jesus Christ? Did we fall before Him in repentance or did we cling to our sins and stubbornly refuse to bow before the Lord? A person's eternity depends totally on what they do with Jesus. 1 John 5 and 12 says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Remember we talked about that contrast? To every side, there's another side. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't, you don't. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, and we're not going to go there. It tells us this horrible end that awaits everyone who refuses to come to faith in Christ. And we've all heard those things before. But these verses in the book of Romans tell us that everyone will be judged fairly. You know, there's very few places you can go on this planet that people don't have some standard of morality. In most every society, how uneducated or illiterate, people still know it's wrong to steal, lie, and cheat, and kill somebody. So there is a certain standard that we have, as one of the scriptures we read says, that's written on the conscience of our hearts.
And when we receive the Spirit of God into our life, I believe that those are the things that we are led by, is those commandments that are written on our heart. With that being said, we are all without excuse. One thing that you can be sure of, God will sort it all out. And no one will accuse him of playing favorites because he's totally impartial and his judgment will be absolutely just. James Boyce said this, The most important thing in life is to know that Jesus is able to save you from sin. The second most important thing is to know that you require it. We need to know that. Not only do we need to know it, we need to act on it. And not only do we need to act on it, we need to share it with someone else. Scripture that comes to mind that we've heard several times recently is that after you have received power, after you've received the Spirit, you will have power and you will be my witnesses. What designates when somebody has received Christ into their life, they have power. But it doesn't just stop there. It says that then you'll be my witnesses. God has made a way of escape. The good news is that we're not all condemned to hell. And Jesus Christ is that way. And He is here today in this place. And I would ask you, please don't leave this place today until you have made things right between you and your God. It's a simple plan. Very simple plan. It requires repentance changing your direction. God, I'm sorry the way I've been living. Take away all the sins that are in my life and I'm going to change the way that I'm living my life and I'm going to go the other way. And the Bible says that then we should be baptized and after that, there's a promise to each and one of every one of us that He will fill us with His Spirit. And that Spirit is what gives us power. And then He has promised that He will be with you in this life and give you an eternal life of peace and joy to come. Would you bow your head? Lord, we love you this morning. We thank you for your Word. Lord, I ask that you would help us this morning to examine our hearts. Lord, just remind us this morning that there will come a time when we will all be judged. We'll be judged by what's in our heart. Lord, I ask that you would help us to look at our lives and if there's anything there that shouldn't be. Lord, help us to just repent of it and leave it behind. Lord, I ask that no one would leave this place today 
until they have done just that. Lord, I ask that you would then just pour your Spirit out on them and give them power. Lord, to live an overcoming life and to be a witness for you in this world. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.